The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Trust you're doing as good as I am. Had a great week and just real excited until Tuesday. And then I'll probably go back to the old guy, so... (laughs) But um, great to be here. Thank you for all of your prayers once again. I just can't thank you enough. They just keep coming at the most opportune times, the verses, the cards. And uh, so just your ministry to me is overwhelming. And I just want you to know that. And I'm so thankful, thankful for for all that you've done. We're getting back to Daniel chapter 5. And this might be just a little loud, guys. Just a little loud. Um, You hear me? Okay, gotcha. Um, just, uh, we're, it seems like all we're looking at is bad dreams and bad interpretations. And this morning's not much different as we look at Belshazzar, who is the successor to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel chapter 5, let's have a word of prayer. Father, as we come to you this morning, we're so thankful for your amazing grace. And we're thankful once again for the book of Daniel that so richly builds into us and so richly gives us truth that is so practical for today. And so I pray now that you would just take over our minds and our hearts and have your way as we give you all the praise in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, Daniel chapter 5 Belshazzar gave a party to end all parties, literally. He had called all his friends to the palace. The king assembled thousands of nobles, many of his wives, his concubines. The wine was flowing. The palace was just full of laughter. And at the height of this party, Belshazzar did something that was horrendous. He called for the gold and silver goblets that his predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the great temple in Jerusalem, goblets that had been set aside for the glory of Jehovah. And he had these goblets brought, filled with wine, and they drank wine out of them and worshipped the gods of Babylon. And right at the height of this party, out of nowhere, a hand appears and writes on the wall. Now, these people believed in dark omens, and they were panic-stricken. In fact, aside from the seriousness of this moment, I couldn't help thinking of Laurel and Hardy. Because when you read Daniel 5, verse 6, it says, Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. I mean, can't you just see this guy? Color draining, shaking like a leaf, knees banging together. I mean, it almost looked like a cartoon. But they were absolutely petrified. So Belshazzar did what all kings did. He called for the the enchanters, the diviners, to interpret what was written on the wall. And of course, they were clueless. And so at last, Daniel was, was summonsed. But by the time of the story, you know, Daniel is an older man now. And he began to read the inscription to let them know that, that this was a judgment. But I love what Daniel says before he interprets it. Daniel 5, verse 18. 
O king, the most high God, gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. Verse 20. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that, the, that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of the beasts and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. In other words, Belshazzar, are you crazy? Did you learn nothing from Nebuchadnezzar, your predecessor? Do you not remember how God, the God Jehovah, made him like a wild beast for seven years? How could you forget this and make this kind of mistake? And then Daniel read the inscription, many, many tico perizim. And he explained it. Many means God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end, verse 26. Verse 27, tikel means you have been weighed and found wanting. Verse 28, Parison means your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And it happened. That night, Darius the Mede attacked Babylon and overthrew it, killing Belshazzar. It was an example of God's great judgment on human rebellion. So let's take a couple of minutes and let's look at sin and judgment. There are a number of important lessons that we can draw from this. And with my research this week and, and looking at various commentaries, it was interesting that most of them boiled it down to, to some of the very same ideas. So let me give them to you like this. Number one, sin is not static. That is... The one who sins never remains on a plateau. The path of sin always leads downhill, as we also saw in the last chapter. In the case of Belshazzar, because he would not learn from the example and experience of his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, he sank not merely to Nebuchadnezzar's level, but even further down. Nebuchadnezzar boasted and took the glory of God to himself, but Belshazzar blaspheme God by desecrating the vessels that had been set aside for Jehovah. And he was punished by the loss of his kingdom and his life. And this is a biblical pattern. It was the pattern of Gomer who left Hosea to live with other men. It was the pattern of Jonah whose rejection of God's call almost led to near disaster. And it was the pattern enunciated in Romans chapter 1, as we saw last week. But let me take you to a couple of specific verses in Romans 1, beginning in verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became foolish." and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, 
to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for the women exchanged the natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Verse 27 describes men doing the same thing. But in verse 28, it says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And this is exactly what Daniel was was saying to Belshazzar. Look at verse 22, Daniel 5. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. So here he is, privy to all the mistakes of those that went before him, and yet he still went on to make the same mistakes. Have you ever found yourself making a mistake And then down the road, you do it again, and you go, what is wrong with me? How could I do this? Have you ever been there? I have. And this is what Daniel is saying to him. So sin is not static. It always progresses. Number two, sin makes us impervious to danger. Karl Marx said, religion is the opiate of the people. He meant that religion puts us in a sleep so that our oppressors have less trouble maintaining supremacy over us. But he had it exactly opposite. It's not religion that drugs us, it's sin. True religion wakes us up by turning us from sin to the righteousness of God that is in Christ Jesus. Belshazzar's final fling is an example of his stupidity. Darius was outside the walls. And that very night, he would dam up the river, lowering the river, so that his invading army could get in through the openings where the water went into the city. And at the moment of Belshazzar's greatest fear, he was partying and carrying on when he was moments from death. Yet, this is not just Belshazzar who has done this. Our culture is doing the very same thing by refusing to think, especially about eternal realities, and by filling our days with what pleases us and losing sight of the danger and falling into the abyss. When you watch interviews with those who are anti-God, we are sometimes overwhelmed by their thinking process. So often, they put all their eggs in the baskets of their opinion. And they manufacture false facts. And we sit and look and wonder, how on earth can people be so blind? Could it be that God has given them over to a depraved mind? And folks, this is why, I said this last week and I'll say it again. This is why you and I must go into the world with love and compassion and reach out throwing the lifeline out, because the only thing that's going to penetrate their heart is the Holy Spirit. And you and I have the Holy Spirit. And you and I have been given a commission by our great God to go into all the world and preach the gospel, and that's the reason, because apart from the gospel, they have no ability. And so when you read and look at their opinions and look at what they do, look at it with passion and understanding and mercy and let God live through you to touch these individuals. 
And number three, God is not static. Now, I said before that sin is not static, but I need to say also that God is not static. There are times in history when sin abounds, and it seems like God is doing nothing but standing by and letting it happen. At least he's not doing anything spectacularly. But we must not think that God is unaffected by sin or by anything that is going on. In times like this, I I think of the wrath of God accumulating, sort of like rising waters behind a dam. And the time eventually comes when the great accumulation of wrath is poured out against sinners. It happens to nations, but it also happens to individuals. I can't help thinking about what Jesus spoke at the Olivet Discourse right before his uh, crucifixion. You recall Matthew 24, beginning in verse 37. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day the Lord is coming. Verse 44, therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Just a little advice, whenever you see a book predicting the coming of the Lord, throw it in the trash. Whenever you hear preachers preaching about the day and whether it's blood moons or, or uh, mathematical equations and they've got it down, turn them off. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. So how ready are you for his coming? You know, it's often been said that there's nothing more certain than death and taxes. But I will tell you, there's nothing more certain than the final judgment. And this is why the Apostle Paul cried out in Romans 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, I beg, I plead, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable God, which is your reasonable worship. Or as the King James says, which is your your reasonable, reasonable work. What are we doing setting the course of our lives without any consideration of God. When he tells us to present our bodies as living sacrifices, he doesn't want us to present ourselves to him in order that he can just make us miserable. He wants us to present ourselves to him so he can use us and give us the most spectacular life available. Come to him. Give your life to him. And watch what he will do with you. It's spectacular beyond words. Judgment is coming. And it's coming when you least expect it. So let's look at that final judgment for a minute. Because this leads to a consideration of the final judgment itself. And I want to point out that this conclusion to a study of the fall of Babylon to Darius 
is not something I'm importing into the story on my own. This is actually what the Bible does. And if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, you know that in the 17th through the 19th chapters, the final judgment of God on evil is presented in a pictorial as the fall of mystery Babylon in Revelation 17, verse 5. Listen to the lament as it begins in Revelation 18, 2. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, Revelation 18, 10. Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And it continues. The merchants who have profited from her commerce and sea captains who have grown rich on her conquests also cry, Woe, woe, O great city, verses 16 to 19. The picture is utter dismay. Everyone who has made their money and set their lives have set it on Babylon, and now it's destroyed. And the world is crying out in fear. But the next chapter, we find not mourning, but rejoicing, as the saints of God express their emotions as this judgment finally coming. Revelation 19, 1 and 2. After this, I heard what seemed to be loud voices of great multitudes in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Verse 3. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Verse 4. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen. Hallelujah. Here, the Bible links the final judgment to the fall of ancient Babylon using the earlier fall as a portrait of sinners' destiny. And this is good. We tend to sentimentalize evil. But God tells us that evil will be judged and that saints will rejoice in this judgment, even as good people rejoice in the fall of Belshazzar and his wicked regime. But I must also say that God does not get a kick out of the damnation of the wicked. And that's why he gave a plan to rescue the lost. He's not happy with that. Let me present the case in this way. The day is coming, and it may not be far off, when you and I and all persons are going to stand before God. Christians will stand before the Bema seat, where they'll be judged for what they did with Christ, and rewards will be given or not given. But all those outside of Christ will come at the great white throne of judgment at the end to be cast out into utter darkness. And what about you? Let's assume that you haven't accepted Christ. Let's assume that you're just not sure about it and, you know, I'm, I'm going to go it on my own. Well, you too, like Belshazzar, will have written over you the same judgment Mene, mene, teko, parazin. Mene means that God is going to number your deeds to show that you have failed to achieve his standard. 
We're told in Revelation of a great book that keeps a record of everything you and I do, good or bad. And for those outside of Christ, that will be piled up on one side of the scale, and it will become crashing down on that side. And this is what Tikal signifies. All the lies, all the hypocrisies, all the self-seeking, all the me first, all of this will fill the scales, and you will be weighed. And as you stand there, that great scale of God is going to come crashing down. And then God is going to speak that final word, perizin, which means divided. The great word for judgment is divided, for God's judgment is a final dividing of the ways. One way leads to life, the other leads to outer darkness. Matthew 25, verse 30, And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Verse 46, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now at this point, when some people read this, they cry foul. They say, if God is a God of love, then why would he let anyone go to hell? That's a great question. That's a spectacular question coming from the human mind. Let me answer that for you. And I've given this to you before in the past, but I think it's very critical right now where we are. When God created man, and he put Adam and Eve in the garden, he said to Adam and Eve, you can have anything you want from any tree there is, except one. Now, some people will say, well, that's not fair. I mean, that's a temptation. Wait a minute. I said, every tree is yours. Just not one. Let me explain how that works. I want you to think for a moment of somebody that you desperately love. Someone that is so important to you. Could be a mother or father, sister or brother, husband or wife, children, just a friend that you're very close to. Now suppose you found out that the only reason they loved you is because they didn't have a choice. They were programmed to love you. How would that make you feel? You see, when God created Adam and Eve, he gave them the ability to choose because by choosing to obey God, they were manifesting their love to God. They were given that blessing. But as you know, they chose their own way. And when they chose their own way, they plunged all mankind into separation from God. Because everyone born is born with a sin nature. What's God going to do? You see, God is so pure and so holy that no sin can be in his presence. Yet the people he has created are all sinners now, separated from him. What's he going to do? Well, the critic will say, okay, we're only talking two people. Just wipe them out and start over. But now here's a bigger problem. The Bible tells us that when God created, he created everything that exists in just six days. And on the seventh day, he rested. You know what that means? That means that your DNA 
was created and in Adam back then. The Bible also tells us that he chose to love you before the foundation of the world. Now, if he goes and wipes out Adam and Eve, guess what? He's wiped you out too, but he has already chosen to love you. What a dilemma. So what does God do? His immense love for you. He takes his own son, God, Jesus Christ, and he puts him in the form of you and I. He becomes our elder brother, and he sends him to this world, and he lives, and he heals, and he teaches, and he draws men to himself. Then he goes to the cross, and because he's perfect, and because he's sinless, his death paid for all the sins of mankind. Paid them all. So to the skeptic who says it's not fair that some people go to hell, he comes to you and says, your sins are paid. Here's the free gift. Take it. No, I'm not taking that. It's not fair. Seriously? Oh, God has made a way. And in such a spectacular, beautiful fashion, he offers you free grace. You can't work for it. You can't create it on your own. You can't be good enough to get there because all our righteousness are filthy rags. The only way to get to heaven is to accept the free gift of life evermore. And that only comes through Jesus Christ. And so the Bible is so clear. It says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your lips, thou shalt be saved. It's not hard. It's not magic. It's very simple. Do you believe Jesus Christ is God? Do you believe that he came to the, this earth and that his death paid the price for your sins? Do you believe that he rose from the grave on the third day? Then you are saved. And what's so spectacular is Ephesians tell us that once saved, always saved. You are sealed to the day of redemption. That, folks, is mercy. And that's what God has done for every person who has accepted Christ. And if you keep looking the other way, what are you going to say on that day? How will you respond when God measures your deeds, weighs your character, and declares you wanting? Left to your own, there will be nothing for you to do, nothing to say in response. But God has done something at this point that your inability is not able to do. God sent the Lord Jesus Christ to die for you. And the full punishment of all your sins was laid on him. And he took them for you. Jesus has made it possible for God to apply this righteousness for your account. So when all your sins are on one side of the balance, his character is on the other, and it wipes them all out. And God the Father looks at you from that point on as if you never sinned. Can you imagine that? 
Your sins past, present, and future are under the blood, and God looks at you through the crimson blood of Jesus Christ and sees a heart white as snow for eternity. What would hold you back from a most spectacular free gift? What could hold any of us back? God takes the scales and brushes the sin away. Now, here's what I get a lot from people. They come in, they talk to me, and they go, you know, I accepted Christ, I know I'm saved, but I keep falling. I keep making the same mistakes. Why? Why am I so weak? Well, you're not alone. (laughs) The greatest Christian who ever walked the face of the earth, the Apostle Paul said in Romans 7, the things I shouldn't do, I don't. The things I don't want to do, I don't want to do, I do. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will save me apart from this? But thank God for Romans 8. And let me just take you to Romans 8 for those of you who are in that boat. Verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There's no condemnation for you. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for your sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. You see the problem? When you're walking in the flesh, you see the flesh. When you're walking in the flesh, you seek the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, you who have accepted Christ as your Savior are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. In fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Himself who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. Give up. Give up. Surrender. Die to yourself. Lord, I am absolutely incapable of walking the Christian life. And I've tried, and I've tried, and I've done my best, and I've tried to have willpower, and I've tried to just do all I can, and I fail every time. The only thing that can make you succeed is the Spirit of Christ that dwells in you. (laughs) You must increase. Amen. It's not just catchy phrases. 
the wonderful spec- spectacularness of God is that he didn't just save us, but he knows we're weak. He knows our flesh is so weak. So he gives us the Holy Spirit to indwell us, to guide us into all truth. And if you're truly saved, you have the Spirit of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, I could spend two months in chapter 8, but let me just give you one last verse. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? You realize the deck is stacked in your favor? You can't lose. So stop trying. Just give up. Just get on your knees and say, Lord, in and of my flesh, like the Apostle Paul, I will always do what I'm not supposed to do. And I will fail to do what you want me to do. Only you can do it. I give up. Take my life and live through me. That is this spectacular joy that you and I have. And as I said, the deck is stacked in your favor. Let Christ be Christ. Let the Lord speak through you. Stop struggling and give your life to Christ and let him do the rest. Oh, we'll keep making mistakes because we're sinners. This side of glory, we live in depraved bodies that crave sin. But when you know it in advance, and you understand it in advance, you know what to do. And that's give him all of your life. You may be here this morning, and you're hearing all this, and it just, it's not making sense because you have no relationship with Christ. Let me tell you, you can know Christ before you leave here today. If you'll come to me or one of the elders or deacons and say, look, I'm seeing all this. I don't fully get it. Help me understand. You can know. You can know beyond the shadow of a doubt that Christ died for you. And you can know that he has reserved a place for you in glory. All you have to do is believe and accept him. And the true belief leads to repentance. And you watch what God does through you. But if you're here this morning and you're a Christian and you know Christ, but boy, your life has been a struggle, it's been a struggle, it's really no different for you. You've got to just get on your knees and give it to him and let God be God. Let him live through you. You know, <laughs> I get a little emotional, but the most spectacular thing that's happened in my life through this cancer is it doesn't matter. It's all about him. He is doing what he wants to do, and I get to be part of it. Can you think of anything better than that? I mean, seriously. Tuesday, I get to walk into oncology for my treatments, and I get to look at people, and I've got a message that many of them may not know. Wow. And I get to come up here and preach. (laughs) That makes me skip. I was walking this morning, 6 o'clock. I do speed walking to keep going. And I just kept saying, God, I can't believe we get to do this. I can't believe you keep letting me do this. Think of your life as a tool in the hand of Almighty God. Think Just think of what he can do through your life 
when you give up. The most spectacular life is just there for you. Give it to him and let him rejoice through you. Amen? Father, we thank you this morning for your unsearchable riches. Your grace is just so beyond us. Your love so above us. And you give us the tools to radiate you. And so I pray this morning as we all depart this room that we would depart with an attitude of victory and rejoicing because it's not just the preacher. It's not just the theologian. It's every person in the pew that can stand mightily for Christ. Allow us to give it up to you. And Lord, if there's any here who have no relationship with you, I pray this morning that you would just break through. Draw them to yourself. That you would be glorified. And we'll give you all the praise and glory in that matchless name, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. God bless.